There was a thief that decided to steal some gasoline from a motorhome in Seattle, Washington. So he took his hose and was going to insert it in the gasoline hole and suck hard and get the gasoline. He did put it in the hole and uh, did give it a good tug. The owner of the motorhome, Dennis Quigley, was inside and heard this noise and walked outside. And when he went outside, he saw this would-be thief curled up on the ground, doubled over, vomiting violently. And what had happened is that the thief, wanting to get gasoline, went and put the hose in the wrong hole. And rather than a mouthful of gasoline, it was a mouthful of sewage. The police came and saw this young 14-year-old would-be thief and decided that they didn't need to arrest him. It was punishment enough what he had gone through. And perhaps the moral of the story is sin stinks. And so it is with Jonah. After being in that belly of the whale for three days and three nights and smelling the rancid odor and the gastric juices, he had had enough, and even God realized he'd had enough. And so this unusual chauffeur deposits Jonah on dry land. And Jonah begins his long trek to Nineveh to bring the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. If chapter 1 could be called running from God and chapter 2 could be called running to God, then chapter 3 surely is running with God. He's on the right page now. He takes the commission God gives to him. And chapter 3 has the biggest miracle in the book. Now, we've seen a lot of miracles so far, haven't we? A great storm at sea, being thrown overboard and the sea is calm, being swallowed by a great fish, and then him surviving the ordeal and being vomited up on dry land. But the biggest miracle is the revival that takes place because the entire city of Nineveh, about 600,000 plus people, all turn to God. That's the biggest miracle so far. So if you thought the fish was big, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's amazing. In fact, it is, I think, the biggest revival ever recorded in history. And if you think of all the great moves of God, from Pentecost to the Great Reformation to the Great Awakening to the Welsh Revival, etc., even Billy Graham who has preached to more people than any other single human being in history and has led through his crusades about two million people to faith in Christ. Yet, that doesn't hold a candle to something like this where not 5% or 10%, but 100% of the crowd responds. Real, amazing revival. The word revival never occurs in Scripture but once. It's used in the book of Ezra when he comes back to Jerusalem from Babylonia. And there he is, and he says of God, that God would give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And that meant that God would bring them back from bondage to Jerusalem, give them a break. That was this revival, this reprieve from all of the suffering that they had endured in Babylon. But the word revive does occur many times in Scripture, about 20 different times. In prayers, usually, revive me, O Lord, revive us again according to your word. That's a good prayer to pray, by the way. Lord, revive me. The word means to flourish anew. 
It's when God injects life into a person, into a church, into a movement, or in this case, into a nation. I think the word revival has sort of been abused in many circles. I've seen churches advertise revival, something they schedule, they plan for. We're going to have revival next week, beginning at 7.30 Friday evening. As if you can schedule it into your agenda. And it ends on Thursday night. Well, I hope it would never end, actually. Or we're going to have a big tent revival. Revival is something that God does when He brings life. And there's three conditions for this. And all three are met in our text. First of all, there must be a messenger. Somebody who goes. Second, there must be a mess. Something needs to be revived. There has to be some problem condition that exists. And then third, we need the right message to bring. The story actually begins in the second chapter, verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Um, That sort of stuck out to me this week. God spoke to a fish. Not that God spoke to a fish is the amazing thing. God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. But what amazes me is God spoke to the fish and the fish obeyed the first time. God speaks to Jonah and he goes the opposite direction the first time. What's up with that? Fish obeys, prophet doesn't obey. All of creation is under submission to the will of God. Animals obey their instincts given by God. Planets orbit in their orbits according to the will of God. The only creature out of whack is this two-legged volitional creature we call man. That's where the problem always is. So, he learns his lesson, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city and on the first day's walk. And he cried out and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. First of all, we have the messenger in this equation. He's found in verse 1. It's our hero, Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. The first thing that is needed in revival is a messenger, a volunteer, a rep. When God said in the book of Isaiah, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord, send me. Not... Here I am, Lord, but send Jeremiah. And sometimes I think we sense the call of God, but we think, "Uh, yeah, here I am, Lord, but I'm very busy right now. Could you send somebody else? But it takes, first of all, a willing volunteer. Now, I have noted on many occasions that God could have used angels to get his message across. In fact, on a couple of occasions in history, he did. And in the future tribulation period, he will. Certainly angels would do a better job than we could do, right? I mean, you think of it. If all of the angels of heaven decided to appear on planet Earth, say, at drive time tomorrow, 5 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 in the morning, all over the world, 
When people are out on the freeways or they're outside, just the angels of God to come down, hang the two billion watt speakers from the moon, get on the PA system and talk to man. I think you'd see massive change. And yet God has decided to limit himself to using men and women. That's been his method from the beginning, to use human beings. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? You follow the logic. Before a message can ever be believed, the message has to be heard. Before the message can be heard, somebody has to proclaim the message. Before somebody proclaims the message, there has to be someone who's willing to go. And that's where you and I come in. We are to be his reps. You might say, well, that's not my problem or my commission, Skip. You're the preacher and people like you should do the preaching. I'm not a preacher. Well, I beg to differ with you. Jesus told 12 fishermen, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. These were fishermen. He didn't say, go to seminary and get four years under your belt. And when you're really qualified, no, he said, just go. And that mandate is still for us today, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So God is looking for volunteers. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth, that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are turned toward him. The picture is God is scanning. And somebody goes, Lord, over here, would you use me? Bingo. He's looking for somebody to use. God is not looking for methods, but he's looking for men. He's not looking for programs, but rather for people who will just say, use me. Jonah's at that place finally. And of course, the key to this whole section is God must revive Jonah before revival happens in Nineveh. Revival must happen in a child of God before we can ever expect to see it in our own culture, in our own city. And of course, it took a couple chapters and a few nights in the alimentary canal of a great fish before he was ready to go. But now he's ready, as evidenced by his prayer in chapter 2. What a difference the first time to the second time. The first time, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah arose to flee. Now it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, so Jonah arose to go to Nineveh. There's not a but he went the other direction. There's a so he does what God wants. I want you to notice something, however. The second commission that he gets in this chapter is exactly the same as the first commission. That is, he has to start at the very same place he would have started before. Whenever you run from God and disobey God, you don't gain any ground. You lose time. You lose ground. Did you know that it would have been about a 500-mile walk from Joppa to Nineveh? Now, I've been in a taxi cab from Amman, Jordan, to Baghdad, Iraq. It took me 24 hours one way by cab. Imagine walking from Joppa to Nineveh A little longer, 500 miles. But it was longer than that for Jonah. It wasn't just a 500-mile walk. He had to first go out in a boat, go out and go the other direction, be thrown overboard, go inside a fish gut, 
be vomited up, recover from all that, then start and take the 500-mile walk. took him a lot longer. Whenever we disobey God, we accumulate heartache and frustration, never gain any ground. You always start back at the same place, ground zero. It's like in school. You don't graduate till you successfully learn the lessons in each grade. And they'll keep you there till you figure it out. Imagine taking sophomore English ten times in a row. But once you figure it out, then you go on and you graduate. When I was younger, I wanted desperately an electric guitar so that I could be a famous rock and roll star. And uh, I convinced my parents that if I would do some odd jobs for them, that they would buy me this electric guitar. I think it cost 40 bucks. And um, they decided they would. They were going to Hawaii on vacation, and they wanted me to weed the yard. I thought, okay, I'll weed the yard. Well, the yard is an acre and a half. And I was to go out and pull them by the roots by hand. So I figured it'd take me three or four days. They were gone for a couple weeks. I had plenty of time. I went out there, and I started plucking a few weeds. And it sort of dawned on me that uh, this isn't the way to do it. Uh, This is going to take a long time. I'm not into it. We we live in a modern age. There's automation. And so I went into the garage and got their lawnmower, gas-powered lawnmower, rotary, lowered the blade down to the very lowest setting so it would scrape in through the dirt. I think I ruined that lawnmower. And I went out through the yard and just chopped all those weeds below the level of the dirt, covered it in about a half a day. It was done. Raked them up. They came home, got my guitar, was very happy, till that day or the next day, my dad noticed these little nubs coming out all over the yard. They looked like weeds, but they had been chopped off. And he asked me to come out and look at them, and I had to explain myself. And then I had to go out by hand and grab all of those little nubs by the roots and pull them out. So it took me three or four days plus the half a day. I wasted time. Jonah has wasted time, and you will waste time running from God. The good news in all of this is the gracious phrase that is used. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's gracious. Jonah, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm the God of the second chance. This is the gospel of the second chance. You blew it once, but I'm not going to let you go. Go to work. This is gracious because God could have, I think if I were God, I would have, said, Jonah, I have a message for you. You're fired. There's a lot of other prophets out there ready, chopping at the bit, who would love this commission to go to Nineveh. I'm going to use one of them. In fact, they're better than you are. But not God. God forgives him and God restores him to service. Very much like Peter. Remember Peter? Peter was... Mr. Though all forsake you, yet not I. And yet who denied him three times? Peter. And he felt like such a failure. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Peter at Galilee and said, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked him that because Peter denied him three times. He said, yeah, Lord, I I love you. Jesus could have said, well, then why would you be a creep? And deny me. No, he said, Peter, feed my sheep. In other words, I'm going to use you now, after your denial, after all of that, feed my sheep. I've got a commission. I think Peter thought, really? Me? You're going to use me again? 
so it is with Jonah. Some people, I've heard this, you have too, they have a hard time with God. They ask questions like, how could a God of love allow evil to exist? I have a different problem. My problem is, how could God love some people that seem so evil? How could God put up with some of us? But He does. It's the great thing about Him. So before revival begins in Nineveh, revival must begin with Jonah. Before revival begins in a community or in the world, it must begin in the church. Somebody went to Gypsy Smith one time, the revivalist, and asked him how to start a revival. He said, very simple, go buy some chalk. Go into your room, lock the door, kneel down on the floor, and draw a circle around yourself, and ask God to bring revival on the inside of that chalk line. When your prayer is answered, revival will be on. You can't stop it. Revival begins with us. And perhaps you can look back to a period of time in your Christian walk when you walked closer to Christ. You were more devoted, more intimate with Him. And you have to look back to that time. If that's true, you need revival. And you need to pray for yourself that God would revive you. I think a case in point is the church of Ephesus in the first parts of the book of Revelation. Jesus said, you're working hard, you're doing lots of good stuff, but I have something against you. You have left your first love. You know what that means? It's that intimate first devotion with Christ. It had become eroded over time. That's key, that erosion. Sometimes here at the church, married couples come in and they'll say things like, I don't love her anymore. Really? Right, I don't love her. Or she'll say, I don't love him anymore. Really? It's astonishing because we may remember performing the wedding ceremony for you both. You don't love each other anymore? Whatever happened to that young girl whose heart raced every time she heard his voice? Now her heart rages every time she hears his voice. What happened to that young guy who couldn't wait to send her flowers. Now he's thinking what flowers he will send at her funeral. Things have changed quite a bit in that relationship. What's happened? An erosion of their love. They have left that first point of intimacy with each other. This kind of stuff, and it happens in marriages, it happens in the Christian walk with Jesus, it's not a blowout. It's a slow leak. It's a process an erosion process. It can happen to a believer. It can happen to a movement. It can happen to a church. The church of Ephesus, Jesus wrote that letter 60 years after his death and resurrection. Very quick in church history. Maybe you look back when you came to Christ and when you first came to Jesus, you were so excited. You came to church going, I love the Bible. I love Bible study. I love the worship. Things have changed a little bit now. You become sort of a sermon connoisseur. And you come in and you may complain over the worship or some person in the church or some group. You don't like this, you don't like that. If that's the case, let me tell you something. The problem is not on the outside. The problem's on the inside. The problem is that the devotion of your heart before the Lord has been waning. The fire has been waning on that altar. And you need to pray. Lord, revive me. So Jonah is revived, and that messenger is now going to bring revival. The second prerequisite 
that is needed is a mess, as we said. You don't just need a messenger. You need something that needs revived, something that needs to flourish again, something dying that needs life brought into it. That was Nineveh. And that's our culture as well. But let's first look at Nineveh. Nineveh outwardly was very impressive. If you were to merely look at it geographically, topographically, culturally, educationally, you'd be impressed with Nineveh. It's a great city. In fact, it was four cities that had merged together on the banks of the Tigris River. They said that it was about 19 miles in diameter, according to excavations. But if you were to go around the city, it would be a 60-mile circumference. The ancient reckoning is about 20 miles a day, so it would take you three days to get around it. That's the idea. It's an exceedingly great city. Three days journey. If you were to walk into Nineveh, you would see a wall 100 feet high. It would impress you. The walls were thick enough to have three chariot races abreast on top of the walls. What a view. Towers that were 200 feet high, 15 gates around the city, each named after an Assyrian god. A library was found with clay tablets that speak about history and religion, culture, mathematics, science, etc. A sizable population. If we judge from chapter 4, verse 11, where God notes that there's 120,000 infants, or toddlers at least, and infants, that there was probably upwards of 600,000 people in Nineveh. Impressive, big, educated. But it was a mess at the same time. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 2, God mentions their brutality, their wickedness. He says, cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Some of the rulers would do things like tearing the lips off of their victims, cutting the hands off of their victims, flaying them while still alive till they would roast to death, cutting their heads off, and when the skulls would dry, they'd make piles of them. Nice thing to be greeted with when you come into the city. Obey the laws. That's why the prophet Nahum describes Nineveh as a bloody city where there are corpses piled upon corpses. This place was a mess. Now, what would Jonah have seen if he were walking into Nineveh? He'd see shrines. He'd see temples. Many worship centers like Hinduism. They had many, many gods, and they tried to appease them all day long. They were spiritually in tune. They had a spiritual hunger. They were very religious people. And so its wickedness has come up before me. It's a mess, Jonah. I need you to go there. I care about them. Now let's apply that to us. I think the conditions today for revival in our country are prime. They are ripe. You say, well, how do you know that? Because we're in a mess. That's why. If there is a country that needs revival, it's America that needs revival. America needs a lot more than a political renewal or a moral renewal. We need spiritual revival. And I think now more than ever before, the time is ripe. And let me just say this. Unless we see it, I see no hope at all for this country. Unless we see some radical change of heart. Over the last three decades... 
there has been a 560% increase in violent crime. That's beyond staggering. It's even hard to imagine. 560% increase in violent crime. There has been in our country a 400% increase in illegitimate births. There's been a quadrupling of the divorce rates, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, and a tripling of teenage suicide. You think, well, why? You know why? Because 67% of Americans say that there's no such thing as right and wrong. Our country doesn't know what right and wrong is. It's a sliding scale of humanism, relativism. Well, what's right for you may not be right for me, that kind of a deal. 67% say there's no such thing as right and wrong. And you look at our schools. You can pass out condoms in the school, but you can't put up the Ten Commandments. You can engage in almost any activity in school except one. You can't pray. No, we don't want that. Separation of church and state, that's wrong. That's immoral. This from a country that doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. U.S. News and World Report from June of 1996 had a cover article entitled How to Raise a Moral Child. They cited a report of a parent that had a six-year-old in school that was caught stealing. So the mother wanted to meet with the teacher to talk together. They could have a strategy together to get the message across to the six-year-old that stealing is wrong. And she was met with this response from the teacher. Quote, we don't use the word stealing here. We call it uncooperative behavior. The Bible calls it sin. And unless a child knows it's wrong, they keep doing it because they don't know the difference between right and wrong. But it is the fad, it is the tendency in our country to rename sins, to make it sort of cool-sounding, in fact. Politically correct. I have a book in my library that I bought called The Official Politically Correct Dictionary and Handbook. Fascinating. New terms for old sins. Some of them sort of as a joke, perhaps, but many of them actually use. Now, you know many of them already. We don't talk about homosexuals anymore as much as they're gay. It's not adultery anymore. It's simply an affair. It sounds nicer. An affair. <laughs> it's not abortion or killing a child. Now we call it terminating a pregnancy. According to this one book, shouldn't call a person lazy. They're simply motivationally dispossessed. <laughs> no longer can we call somebody a bum. They're just a non-goal-oriented member of society. Promiscuous and immoral is simply called sexually active. Rather than using the term dishonest, we should use ethically disoriented or morally different or differently honest. He's dishonest. No, no, no. It's just differently honest. Drug addiction is a person with a pharmacological difference. Rather than drunk, Chemically inconvenienced. He was as chemically inconvenienced as a skunk. Didn't even rhyme. Alcoholic, substance abuse survivor, or person of differing sobriety. What is that? Looting is to be called non-traditional shopping. 
a serial killer, socially misaligned, or a person with difficult-to-meet needs. It's good. It's okay. A riot would be spontaneous display of community dissatisfaction with prevailing socioeconomic conditions. And then instead of swapping sex partners, it's consensual non-monogamy. So what? We have to change the Ten Commandments now? Instead of thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not be socially misaligned. Instead of saying thou shalt not steal, we have to say thou shalt not be a non-traditional shopper. It's ridiculous. Our country is in a mess. Now, I think this is like the obvious statement. We think, oh, but we're economically, we're doing better. Morally, we're shot. And that's why it's prime for revival. You know, you can say, it's bad, it's real bad. You can curse the darkness or you can turn on the light. So we need a messenger. We need many messengers, revived themselves, willing to go into the mess. A third thing is needed. A third thing will work, and that is a message. You need the right message. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We'll get to that in a minute, but picture for just a moment what this must have been like. Jonah, the prophet, walking into Nineveh. This must have been an incredible moment in that nation's history to see Jonah, the prophet, coming into their city. Remember I said a couple weeks back that when James Bartley, who was the whaler off the Falkland Islands, was swallowed by the Catadon macrocephalus, we went through all of that. When he came to two weeks later, after surviving in that belly, he came and he was, first of all, knocked unconscious. And after a couple weeks, he revived. He was bleached white, his face, his hands, his neck, His hair was completely eaten away. They say that people also will have these brown or yellow blotches and and that his skin looked like and had the feel of old parchment. So imagine a guy like this showing up into Nineveh. Bleached white, sort of like an Old Testament Michael Jackson. That's scary just to think of that. Oh, man. He walks into the city. I'm sure that they just listen to him. He's got a message. I don't know what it is, but we better listen. I think the sight was enough. And I've also thought, I bet Jonah never went on a boat after that. I bet when fish was served at dinner, he said, pass. He wouldn't put a fish sticker on his car ever again. He was done with fish. But he walked into Nineveh, and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If you go back into verse 2, we notice something about this message. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. There's not a lot of leeway here. All you must give is what I tell you to say. And I don't know that it was that impressive of a message. It wasn't long. There's no introduction, no conclusion, no points, no illustrations. Eight words in English. Five words in the original Hebrew. And he must have gone through the city and just raised his voice above the din of the traffic. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I bet he even said it with a smile, judging from his response later. He hated Nineveh. 
He probably thought, 40 days and you're dead. I'm so happy. (laughs) And he gave this message over and over and over again, just said that over and over again through the corridors of Nineveh, and a strange silence fell on everybody, and they turned to God. Why? Why was this message so effective? The key lies in verse 2, the message that I tell you to preach. Not your own opinions, not a feel-good philosophy, not just patting people on the back. No, you challenge them with what I tell you to say. So he preached the Word of God, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. That was his message. How different from modern preaching. In many respects, not preaching the Word of God, but just getting people together and saying these little things, sermonettes. The Archbishop of Canterbury at one time was George Carey, and he was asked to assess the Church of England. He said, The Church of England has become an old lady muttering platitudes through teethless gums. No punch, no bite, no relevance. I thought, boy, I think he's described the American church. We have become seeker-sensitive instead of seeking lost souls. Let's give them what they want. Let's take a poll and finger to the wind. Oh, if that's what they want in church, that's what we'll give them. Instead of, well, this is what they need. Now, how do we get to that point in American church history? Well, simply, the church follows the trends of the world. The world finds out whatever they want. will tailor make it and the program. will tailor make the store around their felt needs. If you were to poll America, in fact, it was done, 61% of Americans, three out of five, said the main purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. I'm here to be happy. 50% of the born-again Christians, quote-unquote, that were polled, said the main purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. So you've got a world mirroring the church. God exists in my life to make me happy. No, he doesn't. He wants to make you holy. Well, that's not what I want, but it's what you need. And in trying to be like the world, the church has lost much of its message. Instead of feeding the sheep, we're entertaining the goats. What would happen if pulpits, denominations, if churches, if preachers would preach to their Nineveh, their community... Just what the Word of God says. Just the message of the Bible. I'll tell you what would happen. Revival would happen, I think. You'd see people come alive as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change people. John Wesley said, Give me a hundred men, just a hundred men, who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world. God wants to shake the world. You know what? It needs a good shake. And He wants to use you to do it. He wants a messenger who will say, Here I am, Lord, send me. Who will go into the mess, and boy, that's a given, and stick to the right message, his word, his truth, his love, his forgiveness, but also his judgment is coming. It's coming. There's a God who loves you. There's a a Christ who came to die for your sins. That's the gospel. If you believe it, you'll have eternal life. If you reject it, you will face a certain judgment. That's just the facts. And those facts need to be heard today. How do you begin? Get the chalk out. Draw the circle around yourself and say, God, revive me. 
If today you are an unbeliever, message is the same. God loves you. God will forgive you. God will be gracious to you. No matter what you've done, He'll forgive your past. But you must come. You must decide. Because we'll all face judgment. The only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is judgment for the unbeliever is still future. Judgment for the believer is past. Jesus took it for us, and he'll take it for you. But that's something you must decide now on earth. Before leaving earth, you must decide. It's sort of like going on an airplane. You don't negotiate where you want to go once you get on the airplane. You can't get up and go, I've changed my mind. Tough. You're going to get to this destination. It's where it's going. You must negotiate at the ticket counter when you buy the ticket. You must make the decision at home when you make the phone call. But once you get on the plane, you're going to that destination. And so it is on earth. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you are against me. If you don't help gather, you scatter. I am the way, the truth, the life. If you don't come to me, you don't come to the Father. We need to be revived. Some of us need life injected for the first time into us. We need life injected this kind into the church, into the community. It begins with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your persistent love to give us a second chance. And as your people, we pray, Lord, that we would be your messengers in this mess with the right message Father, I would also pray for those who are here this morning who they also sense the mess around them. They see what's going on in their culture. They see what's going on in their own lives. They have a hunger and a thirst for God. They have a desire to know they can be forgiven. They're sick of all that they have experienced and seen. And they want rest peace, a new start. Lord, we specifically pray for them right now that you would draw them to yourself. 